Hebrews chapter 1. Throughout this study of Hebrews, we are going to be looking at the theme, leaving religion. Admittedly, a provocative title. Because on one hand, it sounds like we're atheists. And then on the other hand, it sounds like we're irreligious. Um, We're neither. (laughs) So I'm going to explain that to you right now. Um, It's in your bulletins in which I'll be reading from. And this is going to give you the guidance of where our study in Hebrews will be going. Leaving religion is a call to adventure. As humans, we labor to erect sturdy, safe cathedrals to protect our lives. We want easy, affordable religion. Something that doesn't demand too much of us. When Rome's emperor Nero turned against Christians, Jewish believers found an easy solution, Judaism. As a religion recognized by Rome, joining the synagogue offered safety. But worship, vocation, and God cannot be squeezed into our safe cathedrals. So, Hebrews calls these believers and us into an adventure, something costly but transformative, to journey the long and difficult road of faith. Engaging Jesus' life means departing from religion's cathedral. And that's where we're going. I do not mean when we say we're going to leave religion that we're going to bash other faiths or beliefs, um, particularly those in the Christian sector. We're not going to bash traditional sections of the faith, nor are we going to bash specific, let's just say the elephant in the room, the Roman Catholic Church. That's not my goal in this. And I have talked to so many Christians from so many backgrounds that I've learned to respect them in their own ways. And even in the Catholic Church, we have so many brothers and sisters who, believe it or not, are saved like you. And so I am not here tonight to make us feel good about ourselves for being Protestants or for being Calvary Chapelites and being the ones that finally got the Bible right. Or this is not our goal when we say that we're leaving religion. And if I was to survey, and I have surveyed a few people, but if I was to survey this whole room, we may have a couple dozen ideas of what religion means to you. But for a whole, together tonight, what religion means for us is it is that cathedral which we erect for ourselves. It is this place that we fit our lives into to make sense of a chaotic world. We need structure. We need safety. We need security. We want something that's predictable, something that's safe, something that's familiar. And so all of us, whether we're there now or have been there in the past, have erected our own cathedrals that provide these things for us. It may be what you grew up in, some tradition, or it may be where you are now. I believe that God calls us at some point in our lives out of that cathedral 
that there is a time when as Christians who follow Jesus, we absolutely must follow him into the unknown. Those who are willing to follow Jesus are going to see some confusing moments. They're going to be in ground they've never been in before. And there will be times, and this is usually the case with young people, uh, but and even, in, even in a less young age of life, there will be times when things that you've believed for years and years and years and years suddenly may not make sense due to a circumstance you're in the middle of or some sort of criticism another friend said. And there are times for, I think, 90%, it seems in my conversations, 90% or so of Christians at times struggle with some aspect of their beliefs. Life is not meant to always be in the safe, predictable, sturdy cathedral of certainty. Life cannot possibly, with all of its various walks of life and all of the different trials and different struggles that we're going to be led into by Jesus himself, Life cannot provide certain, simple, one-sentence answers to everything we face. And it's when we hit that moment, when that one-sentence answer no longer solves our problems and no longer provides the certainty and security that we want, that we have to realize we just stepped out of the cathedral. So some of us, in fact, let's, let's back up. All of us want life to be as simple as the cathedral. We walk into the same building. We see the beautiful things in place, the rituals, the traditions, the routines, whatever that is for you, whether it's a morning cup of coffee and reading a chapter of the Bible or your new chronological Bibles, one year through Bibles, yeah. Uh, whether it's that or whether it's reading a prayer book or whether it's, uh, or for you, if your routine is we sing the same hymns or the same pop worship songs or our worship service is the same structure and when they mess up or they take a song out or add a song, I get all flustered. Or uh, for you, maybe it's identity. It's a certain identity about yourself. That's your cathedral. That's the safety that you're going into. And it's knowing who I think I am before God and who God thinks I am. Uh, for some of us, it's shame. Shame is on the outside and the cathedrals where we hide from it. Or it's a relationship. Maybe we have found a certain person to be our cathedral. Or maybe a bad relationship is on the outside of the cathedral and we go to the cathedral to ignore it. Whatever it is, we all want life to be simple and unrisky. But not so with those who follow Jesus. Ask Abraham. Abraham had his cathedral in the city of Ur. And then God called him out. Said, Abraham... I want you to go to a new land, a land you've never seen before. And in fact, what you find interesting, as the passage Mike read to us at the beginning of our worship, God never told Abraham exactly where to go. He just said, Abraham, out, it's time. (laughs) And he had to sort of figure out north, south, east, or west. And then what waits for me there? What am I going to find? Are our needs going to be met? That's being called out of the cathedral that's leaving religion right there abraham left his safe sturdy religion and entered into a journey of faith jesus did this with the disciples we see peter james and john and andrew they have their safe and secure fishing businesses which they've inherited from their fathers and they're there casting nets and cleaning their nets and jesus says follow me no explanation 
No, here's the five things to expect. And here's the five things I'll give you to meet your needs. He just says, follow me. And it says that they left their nets and followed him. That's leaving religion. To now go with Jesus on the hard road of faith. To, call, to answer the call to adventure and to go on a journey. So as Christians, Jesus is going to at some time call us out of that security and that safety. And you're going to be, what is going on, God? Now, for the Christians in the book of Hebrews, this is exactly where they are. Now, we don't know much about the social situation of this letter to the Hebrews. We know a couple things. We do know that it's sometime in the 60s. It has to be before the fall of the temple because that was AD 70. And the author would have used that surely as one of his arguments, which you will see as the book goes, uh, that the fall of the temple in Jerusalem would be proof that Judaism is no longer God's way. Uh, but he doesn't mention it. Therefore, it must not have had it must not have happened yet. So we do know that it's before uh, the 70s, probably in the 60s when Nero was the emperor and he begins to persecute Christians. Um, who are these believers? Uh, as the church has forever believed, as you can tell by the title of the letter to the Hebrews, uh, it is believed that these are Jewish Christians. There is so much unexplained detail about their former Judaism, about the worship practices in the tabernacle and the temple, without a whole lot of explanation that there's an assumption that the audience here are Jewish. But it is also obvious that they're Christians because there's a lot of talk about Jesus and about their willingness to follow him. So those are the only certainties we know. We have a Jewish audience in the 60s while Nero is on the throne persecuting Christians. Now, I was asked by maybe a dozen people in the last two weeks, so Pastor Brandon, you going to tell us who wrote the book of Hebrews? Apparently that's like the most exciting thing that everyone's waiting for. So here it is. I'm not. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> so you can go home now, whoever you are. No. Um, so there's a lot of ideas out there. Uh, there's the Apostle Paul. There's Barnabas. There's Apollo. Someone even mentioned Priscilla, uh, that she was Aquila's wife, um, a companion of Paul's. There's a lot of different ideas. Uh, a lot of people favor Paul. Um, then there's a lot of just who cares. Let's just talk about what the book says. I'm like with them. Uh, but since people have been begging me, I will give you just for whatever it's worth, maybe Apollos would be my guess. And here's my reasons. Hebrews is not a letter as we're used to Paul saying, hey, this is Paul. I'm writing to this church and uh, grace and peace to you in Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I thank God for you. Here's the agenda. You guys can get your act together. Signed. Apostle Paul kind of a thing. Uh, this it doesn't have that flow. Um, this is actually a sermon from beginning to the end of chapter 12. Chapter 13 has its little letter elements like greet so-and-so. But from one to almost that very end, it's a sermon. And you'll see that this speaker, uh, this, he, he wrote down his sermon for these Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Christians. Um, he wrote it down. And you'll see as we go through it, it's just, it keeps on going. A lot of therefores, a lot of exhortation. And he pulls scripture after scripture after scripture from the Old Testament. We have a massive 
first century message to the early church. This is awesome. We get to see how they would have um, explained Old Testament passages. That's what we have. That's amazing. Now, as you read it, you realize, and the the scholars who study things like Greek and and what's called rhetoric, the ancient art of speaking, uh, they look at Hebrews and they all say that this is hands down amazing rhetoric. This guy was a polished speaker. So that's why I favor Apollos, because we know in Acts and in 1 Corinthians that Apollos was praised for his mighty speaking abilities, and he was a pretty good teacher. What we also know about Apollos is that Apollos was a, what we would call a Hellenistic Jew. It means that he was a Jew by birth and and by his beliefs, um, but he was influenced by Greek culture. So he lived like a Greek, but believed like a Jew. And he came to Christ. And one of the reasons why we would think that Apollos would fit this is because all of the Old Testament citations are from the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures. So somebody who was raised in a Greek culture, not a Hebrew culture. Um, There was another reason, but it's not coming to me at the moment. So I think that'll suffice for the moment why I think Apollos. But I don't really put any money on that. It's just worth your to chew upon. So if you don't agree with me, you're right. So, um, so this is what's happening then. Nero's on the throne, and he has unleashed his fury against Christians. And um, where are these Christians? Are they in Jerusalem? Some people think so. They think that they're in Jerusalem and that the temple basically said, nope, you guys aren't allowed to worship here anymore. And like, what? We don't know what to do now. Because some of the early Christians, especially the Jews, were still going to the temple and doing sacrifices and their prayers there. Um, others think that this letter was said, this sermon was given to them in Rome where Nero is on the throne persecuting Christians. And this is my view. I think this is addressing Hebrew Christians in Rome and uh, that Nero's persecution evoked the letter or the sermon. And the point of it is to encourage these Christians, hey, I know that the heat is coming on and Peter has uh, been executed and Paul either by now or not far from now will be executed by Nero. And so it's a very scary time to be a Christian. And if you are a Jewish Christian, you would fit very well in the synagogue down the street, which is not being persecuted because Rome recognized the synagogue as a legitimate religion not to be touched. So you're a Jewish believer and you're like, well, I mean, they have the same scriptures we have. Let's go over to the synagogue. And that's the temptation. And the speaker here in Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. You're taking the easy way out. God has put before you an incredible adventure. And he's calling you out of your safe cathedral and into the unknown. It's the adventure of faith. And he wants to take you into this transformative journey, whatever it may cost. Would there be anything wrong with them going back to the synagogue, you might ask? You're like, well, it doesn't sound that wrong. They worship the same God and the same scriptures. And I would answer, yes, you're right. On the surface, that would seem like a plausible way out. Oh, let's go hide in the synagogue. But think this through with me. You're a Jew in the synagogue, and you see these Jewish Christians bringing their hated religion with them into your synagogue. And you, as the Jews, don't want Nero to persecute the synagogue. So what do you want with these Christians coming in? You want full assurance that they are no longer Christians and that they're going to convert back to Judaism. They're going to need to reject Jesus. Because you're going to make sure they do that because you don't want Nero hunting them down in your own synagogue. 
And so for the Christians fleeing to the synagogue, they were actually going to be in a situation of jeopardizing their faith and their acceptance of Jesus. And they're going to pretty much, if you're going to join the synagogue, you're going to have to say, no, I don't follow Jesus. That's what the problem is here. So this speaker is saying, listen, I know the pressure's on and you just want to keep on staying in the cathedral. Like, okay, but see, they still have the same scriptures and the same God and we're going to worship in here and do our little rituals and things. He's like, nope, nope. You guys are rejecting the call to this adventure of faith. Now, it's not unusual for us to want to reject God's call to adventure. We all do because we don't like to leave our comforts. Take any story that is emphasizing adventure and you'll see that there's always the initial rejection to the call. Whether it's Star Wars, since that's kind of the current thing right now. Uh, You have Luke Skywalker. You know, he gets the message of the damsel in distress. And he's like, oh, I just want to stay here and farm my parents' farm. And, you know, there's that initial like, ah, there's a call to adventure, but I don't, it's not for me. There's always that hesitancy. Or if you're more of the Lord of the Rings, you have, you know, Bilbo and Frodo both. And Gandalf calls them on to adventure. Ah, that's not for me. I'd rather drink tea by my fire in my hobbit hole. That's, there's always this reluctance to go on an adventure And that is natural within us. But the speaker of Hebrews wants to challenge these Christians and say, listen, your faith is too important to say, but we just want to stay in the safe cathedral. We have all the answers and never get bothered by anybody. Well, um, here's his warning. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter two. Don't worry, we'll cover one. But look with me at his warning in chapter two, verse one. If we want to live in persistent refusal of God's call to adventure... Well, this is what he says in two one. Therefore, in light of what he just said about Jesus, and in some, Jesus is better than everybody else. <laughs> uh, he says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So listen, in other words, um, we must pay super close attention to who Jesus is and the faith we've put in him. Because if we don't pay attention to that, if we just kind of go on cruise control and live our lives in the comfortable ritualistic cathedral where our routine's the same, we got all the answers, we will drift away. That's what he's saying. People who constantly refuse this call to following Jesus and to newer lands and newer adventures, if you are not constantly attentive to where Jesus is going and what he's doing in your life, there will be a time when you're slowly going to drift away because comfort always teaches us to drift away. We numb ourselves, we get used to the same old routines, and we never, ever, ever, ever grow. And there are Christians... Tonight, maybe not in this fellowship. There are Christians on this mountain (laughs) who have not changed their walk with Jesus one ounce for years and years and years. They have not stepped out into a new adventure. They have not stepped beyond themselves to serve somebody new. There's just this comfortable, constantly receiving, 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 And it's come to the point where are you even paying attention to Jesus anymore? Or is it just part of the furniture? Is it just the rug in the cathedral? We must pay more attention. And that's why we cannot refuse his call to adventure. When you step foot into that first unknown land, that 
where, where it was once dark, or you open that door and you have no idea what's behind it, you're not going to just be like, oh, whatever. There might be a cobra or a tiger in there. You are going to be attentive to the first steps into the, to the virgin territory because you have no idea what awaits you. And people that take those steps into the unknown, they are totally attentive to Jesus because they need him. So there's this danger if we continually say, ah, adventures aren't for me. Well, wait just a minute because you might be in danger of drifting. And drifting is never an overnight event. It is a gradual year after year after year, inch after inch drift. The reason we refuse the call to adventure comes in 2 verse 14. So we see the danger of refusing this call to leave religion, but here is the reason deep down we make all the excuses like Moses, right? Moses was called an adventure. Hey, Moses, my people, your people, are enslaved in Egypt. They've cried out to me. I want to deliver them. Moses, you go. Well, Moses has a thousand excuses, ultimately culminating with, I just don't want to go send someone else. Why are we so persistent in refusing God's call? Fear, yes, definitely. But what is behind this fear? 2.14, since therefore the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood. In other words, he's saying, therefore, since humans are humans, <laughs> Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He became a human too. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And here's the key. I starred this, underlined, boxed it, whatever you do. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's it. The fear of death enslaves us to safe, cautious, certain routine. The fear of death makes us never want to step out of the cathedral. The fear of death says no to that adventure because we've seen adventures and they're dangerous. The fear of death is our enslavement. So we have death lurking behind us and that death and this, this, this sense of, oh my gosh, my life is short. I'm going to die. I'm not ready to die. It causes us to seek comforts. Comforts where we can feel like we're in control of our life and we know what to expect and I feel good about myself and I can forget about death. I have got my shows I watch. There's the one on Monday, the one on Tuesday, the one on Wednesday, a Bible study on Thursday and uh, Friday with my friends and Saturday housework and hanging out with the family and the Sunday church. Like we've got our, our comfort routine and it helps us to forget about the fears that we have just lurking in the shadows behind us. So death, a fear of death leads us to seek comfort. But once we're in this realm of comfort, it causes us to, it's like a cycle. The death leads us to comfort. And now the comfort causes us to avoid death even more so. So the more we get enmeshed in our comforts, we look at death very suspiciously and very fearfully and say, don't let me think about that. Don't let me get near that. I really like, uh, as C.S. Lewis, no, it's J.R. Tolkien, whatever. You guys are making fun of me anyways. Um, you always do after I make Lord of the Ring comments. Um, anyways, 
what, what you can appreciate with me about J.R.R. Tolkien is he constantly made fun of the English in those books because he, he always said that the hobbits just wanted desperately to go back to their hobbit holes and drink tea by the fireside with their books. And like just a comfortable life. And, and that's, that's Americans too. No, we don't drink tea and we don't necessarily have firesides. Well, we do up here, but it would be for us the TV remote, the TV or um, Fox News or whatever your ice cream, your comfort thing is. So that's the fear of death. And that's the prison is the cycle. Death causes me to seek comfort and the comfort causes me to avoid death over and over. And you're stuck. That's why we refused the call. That's why the Hebrews wanted to go to the synagogue and not continue to follow Jesus. Well, how does our awesome speaker address this issue? How does he get them to see the need to answer God's call to adventure? That's where we'll break down our text. So we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 1. And I need you to just, you can write this. If you are a simple note taker, this is all it says. Jesus is better than the Old Testament. (laughs) That's what he's going to say in several different ways. So let's take a look at it. Jesus is better than the Old Testament. One verse one. Long ago. See, it even begins like an adventure tale. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent to theirs. In those first four verses, we have an amazingly packed opening. And this is where you see that this is not just a letter, the whole boring routine of, hello, I'm so-and-so to so-and-so. This is a sermon in four verses for you, if you will. This is an eloquent, this is what you call a hook. You begin with this thing and the readers or the listeners like, whoa, tell me more. <laughs> so this is how it begins. You know, little teasers, like even on a show or a movie or something, there's just like this little, and then that commercial, oh, what? And you got, like want to watch more. Uh, this is what he's doing here. This is the beginning. This is Jesus Now, what you see in here is this constant message that Jesus is better. In the beginning, we see in verse 1 that God had spoken by the prophets. Now he's speaking through Jesus. So once upon a time, the Old Testament was the thing. And in the Old Testament, you had Moses and, well, first Abraham, then you had Moses, and then you had Joshua, then you had Elijah and Elisha, and you had David, and you had Solomon, and you had Isaiah and Nehemiah and... Well, he was, yeah. And Isaiah, I said him, and Ezekiel, and you've got all of them. You have all these speakers, these voices of God in the Old Testament. And those are nice, 
But now God is speaking definitively through Jesus, and he's the trump. He's better than these prophets. He's now the voice of God, and we see he's better because he's the image of God. So he isn't just speaking God's word, but he's living God's character. So Jesus is better than the prophets. He's also better than the angels. You see in verse 5, to which of the angels did God ever say, And now he's going to cite seven Old Testament verses, all showing that Jesus is better than angels. Wow. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. That's from Psalm 2, verse 7. (laughs) Angels weren't called my son, Jesus was. Or again, second uh, citation, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. 2 Samuel 7, 14. And again, when, verse 6, he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, you have to be better than the angels if the angels are going to worship you. That's pretty clear. That's a citation from Deuteronomy 32, 43. If you go look at it in your Bible, it's going to read a little differently because, again, he's citing from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. You're going back to the Old Testament. You're going to read the Hebrew translation or the English translation of the Hebrew uh, Old Testament. Uh, He's citing from the Septuagint, the Greek version. So sometimes when you do these multiple translations, words change a little bit. Just all that to say. That is from Deuteronomy 32, 43. And then another one. In verse 7, that's from Psalm 104, verse 4. In verse 8, Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. Uh, Verse 10, Psalm 102, verse 25 through 27. See a lot of Psalms in here, right? Um, And then in verse 13, you see the same phrase that started this whole section. And to which of the angels has he ever said? That was in verse 5. And then verse 13, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110, verse 1. So conclusion, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? (laughs) Jesus is better than the angels. Why, Why harp on this? I mean, I don't think we struggle with this. We see angels, yeah, they're cool, but there's Jesus, come on. Um, Maybe because back then, the Hebrews believed, like you'll see in verse 2 of chapter 2, they believed that it was the angels who delivered the law to Moses. So God spoke the law and the angels brought it to Moses. And so they were the mediators between him and God, and they were the ones responsible for carrying out the law to Moses. Uh, the angels had a big role to play. And perhaps the angels became a, an image or, or sort of like an icon, a, a representation of all that their Old Testament religion represented. The angels were the guardians, if you will. In fact, it was the cherubim, was it not, that were embroidered on the veil in the temple in which uh, the Ark of... The, the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies was behind that veil where God's presence was. The angels were embroidered on the veil to guard it so that man couldn't just barge in on God's presence. Also, on that Ark where God's presence was, there were two angels winging him on side by side, two cherubim, as if like his, his arm rests on his throne, just two massive cherubim. Angels could have been seen as the guardians of their religion. And now he's saying, look, everything you held on to about your religion, it's just rubbish next to Jesus. 
He is so much better than that. And here's the Old Testament itself to prove it to you that Jesus is greater. So please don't go seeking your new cathedral protection over here. Keep on going. Answer the call to adventure because this Jesus who's calling you is there's nothing that can beat him. And you're going to be sticking around for angels when you have the son of God calling you. Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than the angels. Number three, he's better than Moses. We're going to see that in chapters three and four. So next week, he's better than Moses. In chapters five and seven, he's better than the priesthood. The priesthood that worked the temple. Chapters five through seven, we're going to see that Jesus is the priest of those priests. So you can follow those priests if you want, but you're neglecting the priest. Number five. Uh, Jesus is better than that covenant God made with Israel. That covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai. He's better than that. And everything that came with it, all the promises that Israel is hoping for, Jesus exceeds these promises. He exceeds his covenant. That will be covered in chapter 8. Number 6, the tabernacle. Jesus is better than that old shabby tent, the dwelling place of God where Israel met with him. Or if you want to think about the temple structure, uh, Jesus is better than that one too. Look, don't go to your little cathedrals. Jesus is the tabernacle. He is the temple. He is where we now meet with God. You can either choose a building or you can choose the person, the one who died for you. And that leads right into the last, the seventh, better than. Jesus' seventh is better than the sacrifices. And all those sacrifices that they made to make themselves right with God, Jesus became that sacrifice himself, and you don't have to keep re-sacrificing him over and over. He once and for all gave us entrance. He is better than all of the Old Testament. And that will be covered in chapter 10. So you see, he not only begins here by telling us how great Jesus is, but the whole message is going to keep emphasizing on Jesus rocks. So, with that, we go down to verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So where are we going? Where is this adventure that he's calling us to? Well, the world to come. All who are part of the world to come are going to be those who bravely follow Jesus in faith. And he's going to talk about this. In chapter 11, most climatically, what many have called the Hall of Faith, the list of all of our heroes of the faith and all the things that they've done. You can read chapter 11 on your own and get a little sneak peek at where it's going. But that's the ones, the brave ones who answered the call to adventure and with their faith followed Jesus. And they're the ones that were seeking the new land, it says. They believed that God was going to fix all things. Well, we get a little hint here in 2 verse 5 that this is where it's all going. To which of the angels, it was not to angels, that God subjected the world to come. So this world to come, this promised heaven and earth, this new Jerusalem, it was not promised to angels to inherit. It was promised to us. It has been testified somewhere. This is Psalm chapter 8. He now quotes in verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little 
lower. Uh, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So back in Genesis 1, Psalm 8 was reflecting, yeah, God made man in his image and gave him dominion over creation. And man had dominion over creation. But man has sinned. And so the author is now looking forward to a time when that rulership over the world is going to be given back to his people. And um, he's showing us there that, yes, temporarily we're not as cool as angels, but we will be better than angels one day. And that's where we're going. That's where our adventure is taking us. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, that is humans, putting everything in subjection to humans, God left nothing outside of humanity's control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to humans, right? We're not ruling very well, are we? We have a lot of things going out of order and chaos and we've got wars we don't see it under subjection to humans yet but verse 9 we see him that's jesus now who for a little while was made lower than the angels <gasps> yep 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 i'll concede that the speaker's saying i'll concede that yes jesus was a human so he came as God came as a human. So he was for a little while lower than the angels. I'll give you guys that. But listen, the reason he did that was so that he could bring us to something greater than what you're wanting to hide out in, in your cathedral. Jesus went on his own adventure first. He was the one who answered God's call to adventure so that we can do the same. He said, yes, Father, I will step out of heaven. I will step out of our cozy cathedral. I will enter into this unknown realm, being a human on a human world that's totally against you, Father. Uh, I will step into that. Okay, I will die. Okay, I will do this. This was Jesus, the ultimate hero, the ultimate one who went on the journey so, yes, I'll concede he was lower than angels for just a little while for a greater cause. So, where am I? I'm in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That, the author saying, is our hero. Follow him. If you want to go on the call to adventure, he's shown us the way. <laughs> it did lead to his death, but his exaltation because of it. So verse 10, and this is where he brings the ultimate comfort now to these Jews being called to adventure, us being called to adventure. Is Can we do it? Is it worth it? Will we make it? Yeah, because our hero went before us. He is our pioneer in this adventure. You know what a pioneer is? He's the one who goes ahead of the uh, explorers in the thick of the jungle when there's mesh overgrowing the trail and there's bamboo and there's jungle vines and twines and serpents and tigers, right? It's all just, you can't even see the trail. He's the one that pulls out the machete and says, I'll make a path. And he starts hacking and he's ready to take on whatever's going to lurch out of those bushes and us, the cowardly explorers, well, not too cowardly because we're falling, but, you know, the less brave ones, we're following the pioneer. He's making the path. He's forging the way. So verse 10 says, for it was fitting that 
God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us, that's the Christians, the Jesus followers, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The founder of their salvation, that's the English Standard Version. Um, The New King James Version calls him the captain of the faith, or I'm sorry, the captain of their salvation. The New Living Translation calls him the leader of their salvation. And the NIV calls him the pioneer of their salvation. I brought up all those words. Why? So you could see the point. He's a leader. He's a pioneer. He's a captain. He's a founder. Or the New American Standard, he's a source. All this points to the fact that he's the hero. He's the one leading the way. And so through the mesh, through the jungle, he's made the path. And we know that we'll be okay because we're following one who's made it. We're following one who not only made it, but was exalted because he made it. And he's calling us to take that path. We have a pioneer. He isn't asking you to be the pioneer. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Figure it out. I'll be up here watching from a distance. This is entertaining to see that, Michael and Gabriel. What do you think is going to happen next? I don't know. <laughs> Let's see if he dies. I mean, he's our pioneer. He knows where we've been. And you're going to see this later in Hebrews, that he's acquainted with our suffering. Because he was a human and he knows it too. In fact, he actually, um, I was thinking in chapter 4, but he actually says it here in verse 18, to 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, or in other words, because he himself was willing to answer the call to adventure and went on the adventure and hit the hard spots and hit the hardships and was hurt, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's our pioneer. So our message title, introducing it at the end of how, how original of me, um, start with Jesus because he is our first step out of the cathedral. He's the one who is the pioneer. And we've seen that he's better than anything else we could follow, especially the cozy cathedral that we've meshed our lives with certainty in. He's a pioneer and he's made it and he's willing to hold our hand through it. He, he sympathizes. He understands what we've gone through. And so we don't have to live a life full of half breaths and fear and routines and Monday, Monday mornings, like those things happen in life, sure. But we can, when the call to adventure comes, we can with confidence and courage say, you know what? I may have been terrified to step outside my whole life. But because of this sermon in Hebrews, not my sermon, but the Apollos or whoever it is, because of his sermon in Hebrews, I see that I can have courage to take my first step outside and not look back. And I can leave this religion I've made for myself to keep myself protected. And I can go ahead and brave death. And I can go ahead and take the adventure. And I can actually literally live this life of adventurous faith because of Jesus. It starts with him. I can take my first step in him and with him. And beautifully, we're going to have the last message of Hebrews. It's going to be called End with Jesus. So it's the conclusion of our journey. We don't just start with Jesus, but we end with Jesus. And in the very middle of Hebrews is this very deep explanation of who Jesus is. Jesus is everywhere in our adventure. If we have eyes to see and courage to follow.
So I encourage you like Abraham, like the disciples, like Jesus himself, let's not be afraid to leave religion. Let's not be afraid to step out and into faith. We have a hero who knows how to guide us. So may the peace of Jesus go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you in the storm. And may he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders that he has shown you. And may he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Let's pray. Lord, make us an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us show love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is discord, union. Where there is doubt, faith. And where there is error, truth. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. Where there is darkness, light. O Divine Master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Guide us on the adventure you call us to. In Jesus' name, amen.